This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator and Neonatology Review podcast. It is Wednesday, hump day for us. We are talking about cardiology. We're blazing through. We're doing good work, I think. We're doing, we're doing the, Lord's, the Lord's work this week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're talking about uh, pericardial effusion today, our kappa. We're talking about cardiac tumors. And I guess we're going to talk about spleens and stuff, because I know Rooney mentioned it in one of his talks, but I guess we can re-review it. That's uh, right. Because that's high-yield stuff. Do you want to tell us about pericardial effusion today? Man, every day is going to be like that. I thought you were going to Because then that means you're doing Al Kappa. I thought that was going to be. <laughs> oh. I, I can All handle right. it. That's going to be a short one for me. Um, <laughs> pericardial effusion, right? Um, so, um, what can lead to a pericardial effusion? Severe anemia with CHF is one of them. Post-cardiac surgery is actually quite common. Leakage from a central venous catheter is another one that's obviously terrifying. And pericarditis can be another cause. In terms of clinical picture, you have uh, a slow, if you have a slow development, it depends really on, on how quick this fluid accumulates, obviously. And um, if it's rapid, then you'll have signs of tamponade with poor cardiac output, tachycardia, hypotension. The one that's interesting is um, pulsus paradoxus. Pulsus paradoxus, right? Do we, uh, I'm going to go over what pulsus paradoxus is because that, yeah. I think this is, so that is very high yield. That is defined as a large mm -hmm. decrease in blood pressure with inspiration. So technically, your blood pressure should be decreasing with inspiration. And the reason for that is as you're taking a deep breath during inspiration, you will increase your lung volume, and this will effectively reduce how much blood is actually being retur returned to the left atrium and the left ventricle. And so uh, there's less blood going to the left side of the heart, and so there's less being pumped, and so your blood pressure drops a tiny bit, usually less than uh, 10 millimeters of mercury. But now when you compound that with the decreased compliance of the left ventricle that now can accommodate less and less, I mean, that's how I am understanding it. I understand that pulses paradoxus is a complicated process. Then that exaggerates the uh, decrease in blood pressure. And so that's why in pericardial effusion, cardiac tamponade, you will see a, re a larger reduction in blood pressure with inspiration. On chest X-ray, pericardial effusion is not really seen. The, the, you could see maybe an increased heart size, especially if it's a large effusion. You need to get an echo to confirm the diagnosis. And again, if the management of that pathology requires uh, a pericardiosynthesis, if you have a large effusion, if you have hemodynamic instability, um, and if there's an underlying pathology you could treat, obviously that will always be the correct answer. And this is pericardial effusion. Okay, thanks, buddy. Now, go for it. I'm gonna do the Al, Ka Al Kappa. 
Okay, the alcapa, an anomalous origin of the left coronary artery from the pulmonary artery. So alcapa, it stands for exactly what it is. But let's dive a little deeper. It is a rare vascular abnormality occurring in one in 300,000 live births. Fortunately, it tends to be an isolated finding. So what happens is that the left coronary, the left main coronary artery originates abnormally from the pulmonary artery uh, instead of from the aorta. And this is important because the coronary arteries supply, they're supposed to supply oxygen-rich blood to the heart. But since uh, this uh, left coronary artery is now coming abnormally from the pulmonary artery, it then is going to be carrying oxygen-poor blood um, to, to the heart. So obviously you can see why this will create trouble. So there are kind of four stages of the clinical presentation. There's the fetal and early neonatal period where the elevated pulmonary vascular resistance um, is high. And so the perfusion from the pulmonary artery to the alcapa is adequate. So they may not have symptoms. But in the first few weeks of age, um, we see a decreasing, a normal physiologic decrease in the pulmonary vascular resistance. And at that time, the pulmonary arterial pressure is not adequate to allow blood to enter into the um, anomalous left coronary artery. And flow is then reliant on collaterals from the right coronary arterial system. And then you may progress into the third stage, or if there's ongoing insufficient collaterals, you may progress to phase four directly, which I'll get to. The third phase is this kind of asymptomatic phase where the collaterals are doing the job and providing enough perfusion. In the fourth phase, there's a further decrease in pulmonary vascular resistance. And then the collateral flow from the right coronary system flows into the lower resistant pulmonary artery instead of the higher resistant anomalous left coronary artery. Uh, this phenomenon is called the yeah, pulmonary coronary So basically, it's like it's almost like a PDM for the myo so now the myocardium so is being uh, is being screwed. A shunt. That's crazy. That's right. Right. That's right. So it wasn't getting uh, the most oxygen-rich blood, anyways. But even more so now, it's not. Now it doesn't get anything. Now it's stealing blood away from uh, that area of the myocardium. So um, you develop left ventricular myocardial ischemia and possibly infarction may occur in an antilateral distribution. This can create a mitral valve regurgitation. It creates left atrial dilation and pulmonary venous congestion. It's pretty impressive um, presentation. But the overall kind of overarching theme is that the clinical findings of a patient without CALPA really depends on the degree of pulmonary vascular resistance, the degree of the collateral circulation, and how much the myocardium is affected. Generally, they're symptomatic by two to three months of age with respiratory distress, feeding intolerance, failure to thrive. Transient ischemia, ischemia may be evident by periods of pallor, paroxysmal crying because they're feeling pain, 
diaphoresis with feeding and or severe agitation. So they're having these like little tiny um, ischemic events. Um, the diagnosis, so you may have congestive heart failure with cardiomegaly and interstitial pulmonary edema. The EKG, sorry, the EKG will show this ischemia or infarction if it exists. And, and this is, you know, back there from the adult medicine. You see deep Q waves in leads one, AVL, V4, V5, and V6. You may see that uh, ST segment elevation in leads V4, through V6 um, and increase left ventricular forces as the ventricle dilates. So remember, that's an anterior lateral. Yeah, but it's like basically you're saying that um, if you see a, an old man's STEMI, right? The ST elevation MI in a baby. Uh -huh. You should really be thinking Al Kappa. <laughs> and these, what were they, what were they called? These tomb, tombstones? Um, like the ST elevation. I remember this from. Medical school, right? These uh, tombstone yeah. uh, shapes of the ST segments. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's right. Which thankfully we don't see a lot of infarction yeah, in the one in three hundred thousand. Hopefully, we <laughs> so don't see that very much. That's right. That's right. Um, an echocardiogram obviously may show some of these residual, the the after effects, the dilation, uh, congestion. But um, Doppler color flow would confirm the diagnosis, obviously, because it can look at um, flow through that uh, coronary artery. Cardiac catheterization with selective coronary syn angiography may be indicated if the echocardiogram is not diagnostic. The surgical, uh, the management of surgical repair with uh, anastomosis of the anomalous left coronary artery back to its anticipated position, which is in the aorta. The prognosis depends on early recognition and diagnosis, and then the degree of the resultant myocardial injury. Okay. Thank you, buddy. Um, we're moving on to cardiac tumors. And um, I think there's a few uh, cardiac tumors that we probably need to know about. Cardiac tumors are interesting in that in utero, they're usually asymptomatic. Asymptomatic, I'm sorry. They could cause some fetal arrhythmia or some form of high drops. Uh, but again, usually not affecting the baby too much. Clinically, uh, the hemodynamics and the, the cardiac hemodynamics are really dependent on how many tumors you have, the size, the location, and really whether you have an increased risk of arrhythmia. I think obviously what happens to these outflow tracts, if you have any obstruction of the outflow tracts by any form of mass, I think is something that can be very concerning. The Neo Review book mentions five um, types of cardiac tumors. The first one is the rhabdomyoma. It is the most common primary cardiac tumor in neonates. So rhabdomyoma is your most common cardiac tumor. It can be located anywhere in the heart. It often, it often involves the ventricle and septum. Usually they could be usually there's multiple uh, little rhabdomyomas and there's an increased risk if you have something like tuberous sclerosis, uh, they can regress on their own and really you, you should get surgery involved as we said if there's any obstruction of the flow. Another form of cardiac tumors are fibromas, uh, which are usually well circumscribed. They're single fibrous and the majority arise from the left ventricle and they rarely involve the symptom. Usually they do not regress and so they'll need to be. Uh, removed if there's an issue. 
You have myxomas, which the majority are found in adulthood, usually located in the left atrium. They can develop inflow obstruction and the tissue can embolize. We have sarcomas, which are very rare tumors arising from your cardiac myocytes. And finally, we have teratomas. Typically, they are intrapericardial and they can lead to pericardial effusion. So I think that's something maybe a fact that we want to highlight. Yeah, okay. All right. I have a question for you. Go ahead. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, okay, I just want to say because I know it annoys you, but most of the cardiac questions do relate to syndromes, yeah. I find, um, or other clinical pathologies. So I think it's a good way to study them because this comes from genetics and dermatology question 18. A term infant presents with a soft systolic murmur at 48 hours of age. An echocardiogram reveals an intracardiac mass most consistent with a rhabdomyoma. The infant's physical examination reveals multiple hypopigmented macules, hypopigmented macules on the buttock region. What is the likely genetic pattern for this infant's disorder? I got That's a hard question. Oh, I sure. <laughs> what? All of the genetic patterns. Those are the choices. Now, is it A, autosomal dominant, B, autosomal recessive, C, mitochondrial, D, sporadic, or E, unknown? I mean, you really just have to know the answer. <laughs> Sorry. Autosomal dominant. Oh, that was so good because the disease is? You'll tell us. <laughs> okay. This infant most likely has tuberous sclerosis. You told us about tuberous sclerosis. Okay, in 50% of affected individuals, hypopigmented or ash leaf macules are visible at birth or soon after. The macules vary in number and are most often found on the trunk and buttocks and are best visualized with a Woods lamp. So I I've like never to used remember. A woods lamp. I've never used a Woods lamp. Uh, I used one in the ER as a medical really? student. That's it. We always talk about it then, yeah. <laughs> So I like to remember that there are tubers under the ash leaf trees. Yep. I don't believe you said that. <laughs> but other features of tuberous sclerosis include central nervous system tumors, eye involvement, seizures, mental deficiency, enamel pits in teeth. I don't know why they like to test that. And the cardio cardiac rhabdomyomas. Tuberous sclerosis is inherited in an autosomal dominant pattern involving chromosomes 9 and 16. Okay? Okay, buddy. I'll see you tomorrow then. Sounds good. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphne and I via email by sending your messages to nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICU Podcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.